Welcome those that are joining us online. Sorry that we were about a minute late, had a little bit of technical issues, but we're glad that you stuck with us and you're here. Before we get started today with um, our biblical worldview session, we are going to talk about our fourth day in our 21 days of prayer uh, as a church. Uh, church, I hope you have uh, been using these prayer guides. Have you been watching our videos? If you've not done that. We've had lots of people watching those every day, but if you go to any of our social media um, uh, channels, or if you go to nansmanriver.com slash pray21, pray21, all of the videos are linked there. You can even watch ahead if you want to, although I'm not sure why you would want to do that. But there are videos led by various elders every day leading us in corporate prayer through what we're praying for that day, except for on Sundays and Wednesdays, because on Sundays and Wednesdays, we gather live and we're live. Uh, on all of our streaming platforms. So I'll be doing uh, these on Wednesdays. And then uh, we have some of our other elders during our elder prayer time on Sunday mornings are going to be leading us uh, in, in our 21 days of prayer. So uh, this week, the first week of our 21 days, uh, we're praying for ourselves and our own um, sanctification and dedications. Really, most of these begin with the word dedication to. And today we're thinking about our dedication to the word and the passage of scripture that we were all supposed to read today comes from John chapter 17, which is part of the high priestly prayer of Jesus. So a prayer that he is praying really for his disciples as their high priest before uh, going to the cross. And we read this in, J in John 17, 14 and 15. I have, uh, I have given them, this is Jesus praying to the father. Okay. So the the pronouns here are important. So I is Jesus, you is, is the father, right? Them is the disciples. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you, that you keep them from the evil one. Now, Jesus's prayer, this high priestly prayer goes on for quite a while and there's a lot of rich depth uh, to what Jesus prays for his followers before going to the cross. But here he distinctly ties the idea of having given them the word of God to the hatred of the world for the disciples and to the protection from the evil one. So we can really think about it like this, that Jesus has given the, the, given the word of God, meaning, and remember he, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So really Jesus gave of himself, but every word that he spoke was the word of God because Jesus is God. And so he speaks the word to his disciples. They receive that word. They, they internalize it. They believe it is true. And two things then are going to happen because of that. The world's going to hate them because the, the word makes us where we're no longer like the world. I think I did not actually plan this, but does, if that doesn't line up with what we've been talking about the last three months on Wednesday nights, I don't know what does as we talk about having a biblical worldview that, that we have to transform how we think that the world wants us to think one way and that we are supposed to think biblically. We're supposed to think through a gospel saturated lens. And Jesus recognizes that here. They, they hate the disciples because they're not of the world. Well, what makes them not of the world? The word of God does. And then he says, I do not ask that you keep them out of the world, but do you keep them from the evil one? And so 
Jesus isn't praying that somehow that the disciples would be removed from the world, knowing that he's going to the cross, that he's going to be removed from the world. His prayer isn't that they would be removed from the world. His prayer from us wouldn't be that we would be removed from the world, but that we would be protected from the evil one. Now, again, this is tied to the previous statement of I've given them your word, that the best protection that we have against the enemy is the word of God that that is our foundation, that that's how we know how we should act and how we should believe and what we should say and what we should do. We're, we're, uh, we're not just influenced by the word of God, but the word of God is our definitive guide for truth. And in, and in such, it keeps us both out of the world from a, from a worldly sinful perspective, but it also protects us as the temptation of the enemy uh, comes into our lives. So what we want to pray for today is our dedication to the word because it, it does what Jesus says it does. And so because it does what Jesus says it does, we want to pray for that uh, dedication. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can gather together and, and be here or uh, to be joined um, from many places and households online and, and people listening to this later. Um, and as we come together to pray as a church for these three weeks, God, we're, we're grateful that you hear us and we know, God, that um, we're going to be able to see you move because we have asked you to do things and because we have made our requests made known to you. And the requests we, we've been praying for today, and, and uh, I believe, God, that, that hundreds of people in our church today have prayed for this very thing, that we would be dedicated to your word. God, that I would be dedicated to your word, that above all else, um, I would be influenced and instructed, not by my own wisdom, not by the wisdom of this world, not by the deceits of man, but by the, by the wonderful true, powerful, inspired, and errant word of God. Father, I, I pray that you would help us all to love your word more today than we did yesterday. I pray, God, that you would help us be dedicated to your word more today than we were yesterday. We thank you, God, for the free gift of the Holy Spirit, that, that person of the Godhead who seals us for all eternity in you, that is the down payment of everlasting life, and that his actions in our life, one of them is to help us to understand your word. God, would you illuminate your word into our hearts and minds as we think about it tonight in the relationship of biblical worldview and work and family, but also God, just in our dedication to it and our regular reading of the scripture in my proclamation of the scripture to our congregation and our small group leaders and their teaching of the scripture to small groups. Father, would your Holy Spirit help us to know what is in your word? And finally, God, would you help it to become a lamp into our feet, a light into our path, let us hide your word in our hearts that we may not sin against you. Let your word permeate our thoughts. Let it spring forth from our mouths. Let everything we do be guided by the truth that is your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
I would encourage you, if you're in the room and you didn't pick one of these up, haven't done so yet, you're not too late. We're just on day four of 21, so grab one in the back on your way out. And again, those that are joining us online, you can go to nansmanriver.com slash pray21, and all of the prayer requests are there, all the prayer guides there, the, uh, the scripture readings are all there, and then videos from our elders are all there as well. So we only have two weeks of this uh, series left uh, in, on Wednesday nights, this week and next week. And next week's going to be different um, for the last, I don't know, six weeks or so, the really second half of this series. Uh, we've been dealing with specific subjects. I'm doubling up subjects tonight because I had to take a week off two weeks ago um, because of our coronavirus policy. And so I'm, I'm doubling up uh, so I can make sure that I get to what I'm going to get to next week. Next week, I'm not going to deal so much with a particular subject uh, as I am a temptation. Actually, one we were talking about just, just before the break a little bit. Um, but, but that's the temptation to be taken in by falsehood in our world. And so I want to deal with what's been termed in our culture fake news next week. I think that's going to be a, a fitting place to end our biblical worldview discussion. But tonight, we're going to continue with two subjects that I think are somewhat related. I've hoped in the way that I've prepared this, I've been able, I'm able to relate these things together. And this is, these are the subjects of work and parenting. Now, we've dealt with some relatively hot button issues. I mean, last week we dealt with LGBTQ, homosexuality, transgender issues, certainly hot button. Uh, we dealt with uh, race and racism several weeks uh, ago. We, we, we've dealt with other issues that, that are big ticket kind of items happening in our world today that we see a lot of debate about, that we see uh, a lot of disagreement about, that is causing uh, great tribalism uh, within our culture and people are really drawing definitive lines and saying, you know, if you disagree with this, then you, you know, disagree with everything that, that I believe. And then you get to a subject like this. And one of the reasons I, I wanted to include both of these and, and why I, I combined them to make sure that I'd have time to, to cover them both, get them both in, is because while neither one of these are flashy, like at all, this is mundane stuff, work and parenting. It's something that, at least in one case, most of us will do, at least in a part of our life. Now, some people will never work, and some people will never parent. Very, very few people will never do both, right? Most people will do both, and, and some will only do one, but there'll be very few people that don't ever do either of these things. And they really take up a lot of our time. If, if you're still actively working, you're not retired, or you, you're not, um, you know, for some other reason, not working, you probably spent more time today thinking about your job than you thought about anything else. And if you're a parent, you've probably spent more time thinking about parenting, if not more time thinking about parenting than your job, it's at least second to that. And for some, you stay at home, you're a stay-at-home mom, you, uh, you're uh, raising young children, you're a homeschooler, you're helping your kids when they get home from school, whatever it is for you. And these are two like dominant ideas in, in our world that I thought would be interesting to include here in this biblical worldview discussion because we often don't think about them. 
because they're not these hot button issues. Now, a couple of things I'm going to say tonight may touch a nerve a little bit with some people. We're definitely going to push back as I have every week against the world's way of thinking on these things. Um, but maybe you didn't come here tonight thinking that the worldview discussion was going to be something um, that was such a big part of your life. But th- these are big chunks in our lives that we should really uh, spend a lot of time thinking about. How does the Bible tell me to think about uh, these two things? Now, just another word before I really get into it. If, if this isn't you right now, if you say, well, I'm not, uh, I'm not a parent. Uh, I'm not yet a parent. I'm not ever going to be a parent. Maybe I'm not... Um, my children have grown. Uh, There's still there's still meat here for you because when we're going to get not only for you to believe what the Bible says, which is uh, has been one of our sections every week, but when we get to the end, we're going to talk about the church, and that's all of us. That's not just what a we is, you know, people who are parents or we or people who work. Um, that's that's all of us. So so if that if one or more of these doesn't apply to you, don't don't turn the switch yet, right? If you're retired and aren't raising children, don't don't think well. Now's the time for me to turn the switch. No, I think there's really still some positive things for you to to hear and to glean out of this. In most weeks leading up to this, as we've talked about some of these specific subjects, I've kind of given a. Uh, historical, at least a modern history progression. Like how did we get to where we are? And that's been fairly easy to trace as it relates to uh, issues like we talked about last week with homosexuality and transgenderism or like with racism or like with um, materialism in the week that we did that or some of the others. Uh, Not so much here. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the way things were Uh, as far as modern history, I do think it bears noting that prior to modernity, prior to, let's say, late 1800s in some places, early 1900s in others, um, the majority of the world, and still in a lot of the places in the world, but the West, and then still in some places in the world, uh, work and family had a far greater influence than they do now in our culture. Uh, Who you were was very much wrapped up in those two ideas, who your family was and what you did for work. And actually those were in a lot of cases throughout history, unseparable ideas. Some of you have last names still today that are derived from what your ancestors did for work, right? And particularly if you're of European descent, Europeans in, um, more, in more than one language, but uh, Anglo-Europeans, English-speaking Europeans loved to name people by their job. So it's where we get a lot of English last names. And here's why it's stuck, right? You wouldn't think that one person, you know, the father would do this job. Let's say he, you know, built roofs. And so he was called Thatcher because that's what a Thatcher did, right? Um, Or, I mean, the Coopers are here, right? The word Cooper, that's people that built barrels, okay? That's what, (laughs) yeah, still do, right? So that's that's what a Cooper did, right? In, In England. And 
And so somewhere in their past, that's what somebody did in their family. They built barrels of thatcher. They, they thatched rouge. I mean, this is what... But work passed down from father to son, from mother to daughter. For generations it did. So these two ideas of family parenting and work were intertwined. A kid got old enough to be able to learn the family trade and they learned the family trade. And that happened for centuries. It's really a, it's really a new idea. Now it's not new as in yesterday. Okay. But over the course of like, if we take a really broad view of, of the world of world history, it's really a new idea that we're telling kids, you can grow up and be anything that you want to be. There's not been a whole lot of generations that have been raised on that. Now, probably everybody old enough to still be alive today got some form of that growing up. Um, And that that has just increased from one generation to the next. But you don't have to go back that far in human history to see that work and parenting were intricately tied together. And what ended up happening is uh, mobility began to increase, the Industrial Revolution um, the, so in one hand on work, the enlightenment and starting to think about the world differently and starting to think about our roles in the world differently. Those things happen in Western civilization. Mobility begins to increase greatly. Uh, for most people in human history, they never traveled much more than let's say 50 miles away from the village that they lived in or the town or city or wherever that they lived in. Uh, mobility changed our, our, um, uh, you know, the options in front of us, education for most of human history, people couldn't read, only certain amount of people could read, could write, could do certain jobs. Well, that changes. And so now you can look at a child and say, literally, you can be anything you want to be, do anything you want to do. You don't have to follow in my footsteps or my parents' footsteps or grandparents' footsteps. So we, we saw a, a change from the past into modern times, and that's just continued to, to increase. So I want to talk, though, about how the current secular world, particularly here in the West, the United States, Europe, how, how, what are the dominant worldviews as it relates to work and parenting? So we're going to follow the same outline that we've been following for the last month and a half with this, except for I'm going to deal with one and then deal with the other. First is work. Let's just think, really, there are two extreme positions that are dominating the landscape in uh, Western thought right now as it relates to work. One is that work is everything. And this has its ties with the materialism that we talked about several weeks ago, that I am defined by my work. It's not in the same way that ancients and, you know, people in history were defined by their work and that it's what they did. So they got their last name. But I'm, I'm like, I find my worth in my work that if I were to lose my job, I wouldn't know who I am kind of people that everything else is worth sacrificing on the altar of work that to get ahead and to make more and to be the best at what I do is greater than anything else. So in in a certain section of our society, work has become their God, that, that work is that important to them. It is, it is an idol. Now, a growing worldview in our world is that work is meaningless, that, that work is, will you say it like this, that it's, it's merely a means to an end, that I, I'm going to work because 
I was about to say I'm going to work because people won't give me anything for free, but my stimulus check hit my bank account today, so maybe people will give you stuff for free. I don't know, but that's, that's kind of the where, where people are. And this isn't just, uh, here's what I want you to hear. I don't want you to hear these are lazy people, although some of them are. But this is an actual philosophy that, that like academics and, and um, sociologists are debating right now is, is this idea that really how integral should work be in our lives. And it's a question worth an- answering because more and more work is now being done by machines and computers and not by actual human beings. And we're going, we may who knows, progress to the point where very little work is actually ever done by a human being. And so we're, we're actually now starting to have these conversations about how important is work. So you have these competing ideas, and it doesn't mean that those are the only ideas, but they're really these competing ideas. One of them is waning. It's a, it's a remnant of, um, it's a remnant of our materialistic influences from uh, the 20th century, and the other is rising, uh, and, and we're seeing people discuss it. So what about parenting? Uh, it, I guess if you look back in history, everybody used to parent the same way. Um, and it doesn't mean that it was the right way, um, but there's probably some things we can learn from it. But, but in, in the main, most particularly, at least in Western cultures, people really parented uh, very similarly for a very long time. And then um, in, in modern, in the 20th, 21st century, um, there are now schools of parenting. And so there are secular worldviews about parenting that also are uh, contradictory to one another, just like there was with work. And each of these may have some points from it that you say, hey, this is helpful, um, but ultimately isn't a biblical worldview on the subject. Let me just name a few that we see like really active today. Uh, one would be freestyle parenting. This live and let live. My kid's just going to go and do what, you know, what she wants to do, what he wants to do. I'm going to let them be, you know, be an individual and be unique. And, um, you know, if they do well in school, if they don't do well in school, if they're, you know, whatever, these things are just going to develop as, as they go, Right. Uh, another one is friendship parenting. This idea that, um, <laughs> I, I don't know if these are just people that didn't have friends growing up and they want to have friends as they have children so they can have friends, but uh, you're seeing a lot of this, 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 this idea that I'm going to be my kid's buddy and my kid's pal and, and, um, and there's not really a parent-child relationship. It's just a, it's a friend-to-friend relationship. On the other extreme of that, though, is... is fairly dominant, particularly in um, uh, the last 15 or 20 years, and it's what's been labeled helicopter parenting. And it's where parents do everything for their child and don't let their child do anything, right? Uh, there's no more, you know, riding your bike around the block. There's no more turning in homework without it being checked by mom and dad first, there, you know, there, there's no more anything that's not completely controlled because we're on a path and, and, uh, we, you know, they're called helicopters. You've never heard that. They're called helicopter parents because they're always hovering right above the kid. You know, there, there's no room for mistake. There, there's no room for, 
There's no room for that freestyle at all, okay? It's the, it's the complete opposite of that. And people have embraced these. It doesn't, again, mean that all parents have embraced one of these. Some people have, have pulled from others. But, but we're seeing people get away from how the Bible instructs people to think about work and how the Bible instructs people to think about parenting. So what does the Bible say of each of these? Let's go back to the subject of work quickly. First is that God created work before the fall. So we don't get to say that work is a bad thing because God created work um, in Genesis 1, starting verse 26. Let let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that is creeps on the earth. Skip to 28 and he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. That dominion is work. And we go to Genesis 2 and we see God puts Adam in the garden to work it. And so pre-fall work exists. When people ask me what heaven's going to be like, I said, there's going to be work. People sometimes are surprised by that. Well, why wouldn't there be work? If there was work in the garden, right? And so then I'll, when people get, well, I don't know if there's going to be work. So somebody's got to take care of the horses, right? Because Jesus is going to ride in on a horse. So somebody's got to at least tend to them. That's probably going to be my job. You don't have to work, but I, but everybody's good. I mean, there's, there's going to be some work's not a bad thing. So what happened if, if, if works not, if work was created before the fall, why do we think so badly about work so much? Well, because our work is actually filled with thorns and thistles because of the fall. You get to Genesis three and we read, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of. Cursed is the ground because of you, in pain you shall eat of it all day of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. So you don't get long into the story of redemptive history before we get to work's not fun anymore. Now, I can't tell you exactly what work, because we don't, right? The Bible tells us what we need to know, not everything necessarily that our flesh wants to know. I would have loved for Genesis 2 to be a lot longer. I would would really have liked some more details. I think I may have said that when I was preaching Genesis 2 uh, last year. I would really love some additional details there. It just seems like the biblical author hits, and this is what happened. The biblical author tells us exactly what we need to know, and we don't get some of the interesting details. Um, So we don't know how the work was enjoyable, but we do know that it was enjoyable. Now, you've probably heard the old saying, right? This is certainly an American saying, that if you, uh, if you love what you do, you'll never really work a day in your life. You heard, you've heard people say that. It's basically saying, if you find something you love, it'll never be like work for you. Listen, folks, I love pastoring you. Sometimes it's work. <laughs> Sometimes there's thorns and thistles, all right? Everything about my job is not something that I just love. Oh, Lord, I get to go do this. Today. It's not always what it was for Adam in the garden. And I imagine for you, your work has a varying amounts of, I love this. Now, some of you probably don't like very much of your work, right? Some of you probably like your work a lot, but there's still things, still things of it that are the thorns and the thistles that for whatever it is that changed, there was a change that made work difficult for us. So while we can't get a full picture of what blessed, godly work looked like in Genesis 2, joyful for however long, 
Adam and Eve were in the garden. We know that that's what it was because it was yet to be affected by sin. So our work should be viewed in, in both of those contexts. That work is something created by God, therefore it is good. It existed during the time that God looked and said, this is good. And yet our work is also affected by the thorns and thistles of this world because of the fall. And we need to hold those things in balance. But number three, any task the Lord calls a believer to do is worth doing with one's whole heart. Colossians 3, 17, we read, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You know, there's this idea, and we're gonna return to it uh, a few times this, uh, this, after, this evening, and it's something we introduced when we looked at the four ways that the church has historically tried to relate to culture. Do you remember this? This was all the way back like the end of January. So there's four primary ways. I gave this big history, historical, theological lesson. And one of those ways was known as two kingdoms. There's really two kingdoms in this world. One of them is the secular and one of them is the sacred. And remember we said the further away you get from the center, the kind of the worse your theology gets, I guess, and really the worse your practice gets. And so if, if you only ever view the secular as being secular, then you have, a, you have an unbalanced view of, of work. So some of you may, you may be influenced by this and you may think that what I get to do every day is sacred. Because I get to pastor a church, I get paid to do it. And listen, I, I'm in awe of that fact. I recognize that that is an incredible blessing from the Lord, an incredible blessing from the church. And I do not take that, at least I try not to take that for granted in my, faith, in my flesh, I probably do sometimes. But you, probably, you may look at my job and think, well, that's, that's sacred work. And you may look at your job and think, well, my job is just secular work. My job doesn't really matter because it's not that kind of work. It's not gospel work. It's not mission work. It's not being driven you know, to, to uh, proclaim the gospel. If that's your view of your work, you, you need to hear what the Bible says. Whatever you do, do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. So we need to, it's not that it's, it's unhealthy to have maybe a dotted line between some things that are secular and some things that are sacred, but to have that hard and fast line, particularly in the nature of vocation, I think is disheartening to people. So, so don't, don't view your job as somehow less than somebody who would say, I'm called to do pastoral ministry, or I'm called to plant churches, or I'm called to be a missionary amongst the unreached, your job, if God has put it in front of you to do, and, and know this, if God has put it in front of you to do, and that's how God is providing for your family, and that's the work he's equipped you and gifted you to do in the secular world, it is just as much of a calling as what I do. Just as much. You may not see it as that, but I think you should. If, if we're going to affirm what we believe to be true about God, and that is that God is sovereign over all things, Right, His providence is working, not just in the sacred, but also in the secular, that God has placed you there for a reason. And so if God's placed you there for a reason, then it is worth doing with your entire heart, whatever you do. And this is conversations we have with our kids uh, about schoolwork, because sometimes kids don't want to do schoolwork very much. And so we'll say, 
Um, are you doing this as unto the Lord? We recognize that you hate doing Latin. That's what our oldest hates doing Latin. But we make him do Latin anyway. Do Latin unto the Lord, right? One day you can choose not to do Latin anymore, but right now you're going to do it unto the Lord. Number four, the, uh, through our work, the Lord provides for us and provides opportunities for ministry within the world. There really are, there's two sides to this provision. First is, you know, consider the, the lilies of the valley, right? Consider the birds of the air that God is going to provide for you. And, and when I was preaching, I preached on work a couple of years ago in, um, in Proverbs and I said, the primary means by which God is going to provide for you is work. It's not the only means by which. Sometimes God provides by the miraculous. There's been times that we've needed things that, that God has provided for us outside of regular employment. And that's likely happened in your life. You, you just had a need. You had a physical need. You had a monetary need. And God, you prayed and God met it somehow outside of your regular work. Uh, but in the main, the food that you ate today probably came as a result of the fact that you worked today or worked one time in your life and are now drawing retirement from that work that you, that you saved. But that's not the only way God provides. God provides those secular things, but God also in everybody's job provides the sacred too, opportunity to be in the world and to minister to people in the world. You have an opportunity to influence the world for the kingdom of God where you work. And we say, well, you don't know where I work. And we have all these restrictions. Listen, if God has placed you there, it's an opportunity. You, you, you may have to work harder at it than other people. Um, there are actually times that, you may not believe this is true, it, it is. There, there are times that, that I am jealous. I don't use that word in the wrong sense of the fact that you guys get to go and work around lost people every day. I, I don't, I have to, it, it actually I have to take steps to be around lost people. You realize that like with the job that I do, um, it's, I, I, we have to look for ways to be around lost people. You don't, you go to work and there's lost people there and you're just there, right? Cause it's the world that we live in. So that's an opportunity for you. So the Lord's providing for you, not just in, not just, sustenance for life, but he's providing for you opportunity for ministry. Every one of us have the opportunity for ministry, regardless of what our vocation is. What does the Bible teach about parenting? Parents should teach the word of God in their homes by word and, and example. Deuteronomy 6, you, we always go to this because this is the clearest instruction on this. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk to them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down, when you rise up, you shall bind them as signs on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It's talking about the instruction of the Lord, the law of the Lord. And so parents have the responsibility of teaching the word of God by word. That's what this says. You shall talk with them when you sit in the house. But when it says you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Now they took that literally. The Pharisees did. Remember when they had those little boxes? They put the scrolls in them. That's not what Jesus was saying. Our hands and our, our hands and our eyes, like the, the, these are the things that we do. So we teach the word of God in our homes by talking about it and by actually living it. 
Um, when, when people ask me, and, I'm, I'm, and I recognize I'm about to indict parents here, but I, I spent 17 years in student ministry, and I, I believe this is true. When people ask me, why, do, why are we seeing so many teenagers raised in Christian homes, raised in the church that walk away from the faith uh, when they get to college? There, there, there are probably several reasons, um, but one of them one of, has to be one of the leading reasons is not that their parents didn't talk about the Bible in front of them, but that their parents didn't live the Bible in front of them. They, they didn't, they, they heard one thing, but then they looked and saw something completely different in the way that they were making decisions and the choices that they made, the things that they prioritized as a, as a family. So parents have to teach the word of God in their homes. And you can't just do that with words. You have to do that with Example, you have to actually live, you know, practice what you, what you preach to your children. Number two, parents must be proactive in the discipline of their children. We cannot have a live and let live parenting style. It can't be, you know, laissez-faire living style. It's just, well, they're, they're going to learn. You know, there are times where it's important for children to learn the hard way. I'm actually a fairly big fan of children learning things the hard way. Um, and I'm not, this is, this is not what I'm talking about here. I, I'm, I'm talking about parents being proactive, meaning I know what lessons my child's learning right now. Whether they're learning it the hard way or they're learning it by instruction or they're learning it by example uh, or they're learning it by specific discipline that I'm giving, I am proactive in my understanding and my guiding of it. All right, so parenting two children uh, one of them is at the point where he's ready to learn certain things that the other one isn't ready to learn. And I had to be proactive as a parent to know what this one's ready to learn and what this one isn't, what discipline this one needs and what this one doesn't. Now, I'll see people quote this one, all this passage of scripture all the time, and they get the explanation of it wrong. Proverbs thirteen twenty four: whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him diligently, uh, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. And people want to say this is an argument for corporal punishment. Um, the Bible doesn't forbid corporal punishment, but to use Proverbs thirteen twenty four as a command to spank in your home, and this isn't a lesson on spanking, but to use that as a command to spank in your home is to greatly undersell what that verse is actually teaching. Here's what this verse is teaching. It's teaching the exact principle that I just told you. Proactive discipline. Right? That's what the rod represents. The rod represents discipline. And discipline can take many different forms. And I don't tell people how they have to discipline their children. I, don't, I would hope you wouldn't come and tell me how I have to discipline my children. But what I do have to answer for is, am I disciplining my children? Am I being proactive in, in guiding my children uh, through life? Number three, parents must be concerned with the whole child but should clearly emphasize the most important things. It's really easy in parenting to get tunnel vision. And depending on who you are as a parent and what's important to you, you get tunnel vision based off of different things. And it could be that your tunnel vision is grades. Um, it could be that your tunnel vision is academics. It could be that your tunnel vision is socialization. And that we, we find those are just three examples of what probably many and parents tend to, push in one direction and and you got to prepare for that career you got to you know be a kind gentle friendly person you got to 
And so we end up pushing to the neglect of, of all of the others. Um, in Proverbs 4, we read, Hear, O son, a father's instruction. Be attentive that you may gain insight, for I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. Then he goes on, this is Solomon writing, he goes on to say, when I, was, when I was a son with my father tender, the only one on the side of my mother, he taught me and said to me, and he gives this whole list of these, this is how my father taught me, and now, son, I'm trying to teach you. And when we take that in context of um, the last third of Proverbs, right? Chapter 11 through 31, the Proverbs proper, most of which was written by Solomon, not all of it. It spans this gamut. I think it's one of the reasons people love Proverbs because it talks about all kinds of things, right? Just, just wide variety of things. Solomon, in giving instructions to his son, wasn't, didn't have tunnel vision. He talked about money. He talked about girls. He talked about sin. He talked about um, work. You know, he, he talked about having good friends versus having bad friends. He talked about uh, learning, and he talked about the application of learning, and he talked about all of these things. So, so as parents, we need to ask that question sometimes. Am I getting tunnel vision? Most of the places we see parents do that nowadays relates to either academics or athletics uh, because a kid will kind of show some proclivity to something and we think, oh, they're going to be really smart. No, oh, they're going to be really good at this. Um, and so we, we tend to push. And hear me say this, academics are important. I think athletics to certain kids, at least are important. something extracurricular, doesn't have to be athletics, but something like that, you know, doing something outside, those things, those things are important, but what's most important, <laughs> raising a child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and to, to watch parents sacrifice teaching the, the word of God, uh, by, by, word and example in their homes just so their kid can be academically uh, excellent or athletically excellent or socially excellent. Uh, I've, I've watched that far too often. We've got to have a balance. And part of that balance for the Christian parent is making what we say is the most important thing actually the most important thing. So what, two Sundays ago, was it last Sunday? Two Sundays ago, I said, I said in the second service, in the first service, I said in the second service, parents don't, you know, if your kid comes to you and wants to follow the Lord to something like, you know, spending a gap year on the mission field or doing two years after college or um, spending a semester abroad working, working with the IMB or doing something in missions, um, don't start asking secular questions. <laughs> Right, because when we first start asking secular questions, like what's that going to do to your college plan? What's that going to do to your marriage plan? What's that going to do to your career path? What do we communicate? We communicate that all of those things are far more important than what maybe God is calling them to do. All right, the gospel. How does the gospel influence work and parenting? Number one, we're going going back to work. Sorry again that I'm bouncing back and forth. I wanted to cover both of these, and I know I'm. To cover both, I'm probably doing a halfway job on both of them, but I wanted to make sure we got it, got it in. Um, work, working for the glory of God must include finding a way to leverage our work for the gospel. Now, I said God's going to give you the provision for that, but I, I kind of left that at that point saying God's going to give you the provision for it. Here's what, here's what we must understand. We, we must understand that if I am going to view my vocation 
as a calling, which it is, that God has placed it in front, that God has providentially placed you in the, in the place that you are in, in a career, whatever that looks like for you, then to do that for the glory of God, to do that as well as the scripture would expect us to do it, is going to require that we ask gospel questions about our work. How is my work helping me influence people for the sake of the gospel? Now, this doesn't only encompass gospel conversations with people. I think it needs to encompass that, but we do recognize that some of you may be at least on work premises restricted in gospel conversations that you can have. You you know, some of you have a gospel conversation and it's seen as if the government is now having a gospel conversation or an employer is having a gospel conversation. And I recognize you may have to be careful with that. But what kind of relationships are you building there that allows you to do that in some other uh, forum that's not necessarily work? Or how does your work, remember we, you know, in the parenting, and these things are so easily connected. In the parenting section, it's not just about what you say, but it's also what you do in front of your kids that really has, has a lot of matter. The same is true for Christians at work. You know, it, let's just assume that one of you has a job that you can talk about church and talk about the gospel and talk about all this, all that you want to. And let's just assume that you regularly take things like our Easter invite cards and our Christmas Eve invite cards and and you're always talking about what you're learning at church and what, you know, what's happening at church. And you're always inviting everybody. But you're also a terrible employee. And you're, you're a terrible coworker. And you do your job halfway. And maybe you're not super honest even about the work that you do or the hours that you work. You, you, you see the problem, don't you? You, you see where... Even in those situations where somebody, you are free, that example really matters. And so for all of us, our our gospel witness is a witness of word, but it is also a witness of example. But the gospel also reminds us some things about our work. For instance, the gospel reminds us that our efforts will never be enough. Do you ever feel that way in in your work? That, that, That... it's always going to be waiting for you tomorrow. <laughs> there's, there's always, look, I don't care how hard you work today, tomorrow, that, you know, whatever it is, you know, you make widgets or whatever it is that you do. Um, it, it, it's always going to, it's always going to require, going to require more. Well, think about the, the relationship of the gospel and that, and that very fact that we can't do enough uh, as it relates to uh, our position with the Lord. And so our work and our, the gospel, they kind of relate to one another in this way that our work reminds us of that. Our work also reminds us of that sin has, has had devastating effects in this world. That the things that you don't like about your job, you don't like them because of sin. And uh, you, you, you may never, like, it's not that you're going to be able to stop sinning and make those things go away. Those things may not go away until the Lord returns but every time you have to do something at work you don't like, let that be a reminder to you of the fact that this, this is the fall. This is what the fall looks like. And it's not, we don't get to look back into, you know, history past and look at Adam and Eve and say, well, if only y'all wouldn't remember. Adam and Eve represented all of us in that garden. And every one of us would have taken a bite from that tree. Every single one of us would have done in their position what they did. 
because that's human nature. And so we are all equally at fault. Sin is in this world because of all of us. We are all represented in Adam in, in that sin. And so our work, those parts of our work we don't like, reminds us of, of, that, of the effects of sin. In parenting, the gospel, we, we have to remember that our greatest assignment as parents is to clearly communicate the gospel with our children. Um, if, if my children grow up to be um, super well-educated, incredibly well-adjusted, wonderfully athletic children, but never heard the truth of the gospel and never learned from their parents to value God's word and to value God's church, then I've failed. Now, that's not to say, because I recognize some of you in here are older, your children are grown, and some of your children may have walked away from the Lord, and that can be hard for you to hear. Understand something, and that may not be your failure. You may have done everything you could have done in your, you know, limited as you are, as we all are. You may have done everything you could have done. We're not guaranteed by any verse of Scripture that our children will definitively do what we teach them to do. But what is our responsibility? Our responsibility is to make sure that they knew, know what the most important things are, that they've heard the gospel and have the opportunity to respond to it. They know the importance of God's word and his church. That if, if I fail to teach that in my home, if you fail to teach that in your home, everything else that we taught them will burn up one day. Right? Just like everything else that we have will burn up one day outside of what God has done uh, in and through us. But the gospel also relates to parenting, just like work did. It, tell, it teaches us some things, I think. One, it, one, the one thing it teaches parents, one thing that uh, parenting teaches parents about the gospel, reminds us about the gospel, is that none of us are perfect. I have failed more parenting than I have failed at anything else in my life. Anything. Like you, you, I've probably like cumulatively everything else that I've failed at in life does not still equal the number of failures that I've had as a parent. And, um, that, that is a great reminder that I'm, I'm, I'm not perfect. And, uh, the gospel reminds us as parents that our children will not be perfect because we're not perfect. And, um, listen, it, we, we do a disservice, I think, to the gospel witness that we have when our children when we set some level of perfection that is unattainable and that we should know is unattainable because we're not perfect. <laughs> and so, but with somehow we expect them to be. And so, you know, there's, there's good advice to be had in operating a household that, that recognizes the need for grace, right? Our gospel need for grace and how that then permeates into our family where we're saying, okay, uh, I'm going to be willing to operate in grace here because you're not a perfect child and I'm not a perfect parent. Finally, as it relates to the gospel, and this is with work and parenting, because these are the things that we do the most. Right? We, we get up and we go to work, we parent our children, we don't even think about these things. Our work and our parenting will be two of the greatest opportunities for personal sanctification. Probably outside of 
as far as practical sanctification goes, it's likely the highest, right? Outside of your own dedication to the word and our disciple making of, of one another, our work and our parenting, our homes, our work and our homes um, are, are the two greatest influencers of our sanctification, that we are regularly faced with opportunities to respond in Christ-likeness or to respond in sin nature. Remember, sanctification is the, is the progressive act of putting off sin and putting on Christ. Um, if you have small children in your home, they gave you 300 opportunities just today to either, you know, to either act like Jesus or not, okay? Um, if you worked all day before you came here, you probably had maybe an equal number of opportunities. Depends on your workplace to be like Jesus or to not. And so we need to, we need to approach those. And remember, sanctification is part of the gospel. It is that ongoing work of the gospel in our lives. And so it trans, it, it really makes this big tra um, uh, transition in thinking when we, when we start approaching it, not just as mundane work and, and world that we live in, but the, this is actually contributing to me and I'm being given practical opportunities to do uh, what I say I believe and want Jesus to do through me. Finally, the church, uh, the church's actions concerning work and parenting. And going back to work, the church must be careful not to exalt some sacred work over secular work. And I said we would come back to this idea. Um, we, we have a, I think our church does a decent job of this. I think the, the church um, has done a horrific job of it historically. All right. Um, the, the part of the, I'm not picking on a denomination here, but I'm just going to, for, for much of human history, there was the Catholic church and the Catholic church's exaltation of the priest and bishop over the laity uh, had numerous problems, and this is one of them. And that is there was, there was God-called work, and then there was everything else. And many people, millions of people, lived for centuries with that divide. Now, there were other, uh, maybe even more dire theological issues in the exaltation of the priesthood uh, as it relates to the common person in that for much of human history, they didn't allow those people to read the Bible for themselves. And you had to trust that this person was telling you the truth. You had to believe what they said. That's another lesson. As it relates to this though, we, we, we're coming out of that. And I, I believe, you know, the reformation helped us with that. And that's a way that we're still reforming. But the, even in, even in American churches, even in Baptist churches, evangelical Protestant churches, there's this exaltation of the work that the pastor does. I think plurality of elders helps with that in that we have elders of our church who don't work here in that they don't get paid to work here, but that they are also pastors of our church. I think that's one of the greatest benefits of a plurality of elders is, is that it, is it actually brings that position down a little bit into the, into the everyday life of, of people. So the church needs to be careful about how we say the things that we do because we don't want to communicate that some people are called by God to do their jobs and some people aren't. Second, the church must equip people to live a Christ-like 
a Christ-like life in their jobs. This needs to be a regular part of our application. And it goes back to how I began this. This is so mundane, right? Our work and our families, these are just the things that we do every day that that should demand that we're regularly drawing application. Uh, the scripture's application can't be limited to these four walls, right? They, they have to go into the place where you spend 40, 50, 60, maybe hours a week if you're still working. Um, that's a lot of time. You spend more waking hours. I spend more waking hours at work than I probably, I haven't done the math, but probably spend more waking hours at work than I do it at home. Um, and many of you do too. And so we, we need to think, I need to think if I'm preaching our small group leaders need to think, how are we actually helping people to live Christ-like lives in their, in their jobs? The church's um, actions concerning parenting, uh, the church has to, has to recognize that, pri- that parents are the primary disciple makers of their children, not the church. Um, we, the, the evangelical church in the United States uh, made a dire error in the latter part of the 20th century when we began to promote the, the um, generational segregation of the body. And that's not to say that youth groups bad and children's ministry bad. We have those things happening right now. But what ended up happening in the church over the 80s and the 90s is it became more and more segregated where families were showing up to church, going their own places. And I'm talking Sunday morning church, and this is still prevalent in our world today, going their own places and never meeting. I've met adults who were raised in church that never heard, that never sat in a church worship service until they had graduated high school. (laughs) Um. Listen, we, we do a lot of damage when we, when we think that somehow the church is the professional disciplers of children and teenagers and not mom and dad. I think youth ministry and student ministry children really have their place. Um, I, I did that job for a long time. Um, I, I think they have an important place in the life of the church. But the church has to see this because if the church doesn't see it, parents don't see it. Number two, the church must equip parents to be godly parents. <laughs> they can see, teach people, just like we have to equip people to be Christ-like in their jobs, they have to teach parents how to be Christ-like in their, in their parenting. Our application ought to go to that end. And the last one, this one, parents, I just want to encourage you with. Um, parents need to encourage their children to become an active part in the body, not only a passive receiver. Uh, earlier in the talk, I alluded to the fact that over the years, I saw many, many kids grow up in church, raised, but they walked away. And, and I said, one of the reasons they walked away was, was because parents weren't being an example in the homes. And I believe that's true. Um, you want to know why I think some of them stayed? The majority that I saw stayed, stayed because they felt like they were important. Because what, because they had a, they had something to do. They had a part. They were and I don't mean important like as in self-importance. I mean, the Bible tells them that they were a part of the body of Christ and it wasn't just theoretical, but that the church made them a part of the body of Christ. 
So parents, let your kids work at the church. <laughs> when, when, um, when our oldest got into, into middle school, that was what we, we said. I mean, he, he came to faith in Christ as a uh, late elementary uh, age kid. And we started talking about that. And we said, at, at the point that you're going to be in middle school, it's going to be the point that you're going to find a place to serve in, in the church. And he did. And he still to this day serves in our preschool at least once a month. Loves it, loves serving, has a place here. And I hope that that'll grow. I hope there'll be more of that in, in his life so that there won't be this, oh no, I'm not in the youth group anymore moment. And I would hope that for your kids, that, that you, would, you would allow them places to serve. They would serve with you as they're younger and then, and then grow older. And then I know I'm, I'm running on time here, but a part of this too, and, and this is the part that, that I think the church is still figuring out, is that as, as children age, not only do they become more and more involved, like actively a part of the body, but they become more and more accountable to the body, right? You, as a, an adult church member, are an accountable to this body, right? Like we, have, we practice covenant church membership here. And while we would still affirm that a parent is the primary discipler of their child, which is true, there's, there needs to be this gradual shifting into adulthood where that child becomes more and more accountable uh, and, and less under the, not less under the influence of the parent, but allowed to be influenced and serve independent of because that heartbreak, right? All of a sudden, all right, you're an adult now. That, that, can, be a, that can be a shock to the system. And so we've got to continue to work on that. So parents have to do that work of discipling their kids, but the church has an important role and an important part in that. And a big part of that is that child's relationship to the church that they serve in. Well, I've gone over my time. I recognize I didn't get to do both of these subjects, probably the justice they deserved, but I hope it was at least in some ways helpful for you. Let me pray for us. God, I pray for these men and women, many of them, will go to work tomorrow. Many of them will go home with children tonight and they will have the opportunity tonight and tomorrow to practice some of this. That right in their path is going to be moments for disciple making, moments to show godly living and, and a Christ-like life, moments for gospel proclamation, both at home and at work. Would you let them take the, help them to take that step, empower them, Holy Spirit. Uh, let us to encourage one another, we pray, because none of us have arrived. None of us are perfect. And um, our work and our parenting teaches us that and reminds us of that so often. Help us, God, to be good examples in both of these arenas as we spend so much of our lives in these places, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Make sure you're back next week. One more week of Biblical Worldview as we talk about fake news. And what should a Christian's relationship with uh, falsehood be? You should, obviously, we shouldn't have a relationship with falsehood, but I'm going to go more in depth into it as it relates to our worldview. So thanks that joined us online. Make sure you're back with us uh, again. Thank you to those that are in the room joining us in person today. God bless.